This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. This week, we are talking about abdominal wall defects. I thought it was going to be easier than it was. You're 100% responsible for it. Uh, and it's always funny when we do these topics where you like you 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 do the research and then you're like, oh, that's controversial. Like I thought, <laughs> I yeah. didn't recall that part being controversial. Damn, there's like 16 opinions. You know what else? I will get to the surgical management a, a few times this week, but in our career and training, <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe they just do this in different ways, different surgeons, but. The way that management of, say, gastroschisis has changed in the last decade, which, by the way, bookends our training and early career. Uh, it's just funny how we got trapped inside of all of that. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were going to say? No, that's all I was. That's oh, all. You're just, that's it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I thought that it was my experience was changing because I was at different institutions and I had different surgeons, but. Oh, you didn't it realize was, that it was It like... was interesting to review the surgical literature over I the see, last decade. Yeah. Okay. Um, a few um, announcements. We uh, are going to have a pediatric surgeon on to talk to us a little bit. Daphna, silence your phone. I don't even know where it is. Here it is. <laughs> here's, the, here's why this is even more frustrating. Can I say why it's even more frustrating? Yeah. Because you don't pick up when we call. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but we're going to have... Uh, you, always doc- call, you always call it dinner time. So I have one... You I know have that, like, one it's a, this is something sanctuary that's, and it's that's, dinner time. <laughs> it's, it's European. Like, you know, we eat very late. That's true. You what and time I do you eat dinner? You and I have different dinner times. We usually eat about six. Yeah, we eat at eight. Yeah. So you try to call me before your dinner time, but it's yeah. during my dinner <laughs> <laughs> It was uh, it was very funny when we were my wife and I in certain parts of the country, and you go to like a restaurant at like eight eight thirty, sometimes nine. They're like, no, oh, kitchen's yeah. ki- kitchen's empty. closing, yeah. and it's like in Europe, nine o'clock is when you go you go for, for dinner. In any case, um, so we're gonna have a pediatric surgeon on uh, later this week. Uh, that's gonna be quite interesting to get a glimpse as to. Uh, I, I guess one of the big reasons why I, I wanted to make sure we spoke to a surgeon was because we have to give anticipatory guidance to these families and um, and the surgeons really see these babies mm-hmm. after they go home and they can and so it's kind of nice to know like what what are the things that you should warn families about to look out for and things like that so that will be I think very very valuable. Um, in other incubator news, we just got off like a, what, a two hour meeting with, mm-hmm. uh, c to try to work on our, uh, neonatal innovation conference, the Delphi conference that is going to take place from March 27th to March 29th. It's going to be, we're, 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 we're creating something that I would, I would be like, hell yeah, I want to attend. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, how many people will attend, but this is going to be cool. And, uh, so we're going to have, um, 
a bunch of speakers on on the two day stretch on Monday and Tuesday, and then we'll close out the that that three day session with an independent uh, TEDx event, um, and that's going to be quite neat. Uh, you can actually the TEDx is actually referenced on the TED website. It's TEDx New River because of uh, the different channels that are running in the swamp of Fort Lauderdale. Um, but it's very, very cool. Um, and so we hope that uh, you join us for that conference. And uh, yeah, that's what that's what's taking the bulk of our time right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we're super excited about it. I hope people say, oh, the incubator, you know, they're doing they're doing stuff a little different. And we hope that the uh, yeah. conference will 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 give you that experience. Well. Because the goal of that conference is not to encroach on PAS, not to encroach on, on the AP experience, not on the, like the goal is not to take a specific topic and present the latest data. The goal is to try to say, how do we think a little bit differently mm-hmm. about what the future of our field looks like? And so we're going to try to bring people who have very interesting visions for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we're hoping that you, we will be able to have these speakers share uh, thoughts, ideas that then you can take back with you and saying, all right, like I want to think about this in the same way, a bit differently, and and so that's gonna be that's gonna be exciting. All right, but we digress, and um, I digress. All we right, always Daphne. do. Uh huh. You're you're starting us off today. Okay, so today I'm really gonna talk about kind of the the nitty gritty those those distinguishing factors between gastroschisis and emphalocele, which is like super highly tested and, and pretty clinically relevant. So uh, in each section, I'll say, I'll start with gastroschisis and we'll compare it to emphalocele. So gastroschisis is the most common abdominal wall defect. It's defined as being a para-umbilical, so not through the umbilicus, but adjacent to the umbilicus, abdominal wall defect um, associated with protrusion of the bowel through the defect without an overlying membrane to cover the exposed bowel. This occurs in one, approximately one in every 4,000 births. There's a a pretty similar male and female incidence, though some papers indicate a, a, a mild male predominance. And this is a distinguishing factor between gastroschisis and emphalocele. It's more common in younger mothers or or infants born to younger mothers, particularly those less than 20 years old, um, and in mothers that are white or Hispanic. It's associated with prenatal smoking, illicit drug use and alcohol use, pregestational or gestational diabetes, some antidepressants, and um, periconception GU infections. I did not know that. Hmm. And uh, its prevalence is increasing. Of course, gastroschisis can be seen in pregnancies that don't have any of those uh, features, but those are some of the um, associated um, social histories. Diagnosis is usually made at that 20-week um, ultrasound with evidence of bowel free-floating in the uterine cavity. Obviously, on ultrasounds that are done earlier, we do see a free-floating bowel, and Ben will tell us a little bit about all of that uh, tomorrow because of the embryology of the development of the abdom- abdominal wall. But the defect is found to the right of the umbilical cord. So that's a clinically important um, finding on your um, early physical exam and something they may be able to see on abdominal ultrasound of the mother. There can be elevation of maternal AFP during early testing. um, And interestingly, it may be accompanied by oligo or polyhydramnios. So in babies that are growth... For when you say AFP, you mean alpha fetoprotein, right? 
Yes. Okay. Sorry. No, no, that's Thank fine. You. I'm just wondering if somebody is is not if we have students and they're like AFP. You're absolutely. Yeah, right. I would have. I would have asked absolutely that question. <laughs> <laughs> What's the AFP? Uh-huh. Um, and you'll see an elevated alpha fetoprotein, which is was part of the uh, initial um, uh, quad screen, which we're moving away from quad screens, but um, with all of the abdominal wall defects, you'll see um, increased uh, alpha fetoprotein. So, um, uh, amniotic fluid levels. So oligohydramnios is seen in infants with gastroschisis who are growth restricted. And we'll talk about a huge proportion of, um, babies with gastroschisis are also growth restricted. Um, infants with gastroschisis are at higher risk of having atresias. We'll talk about that also. And babies who have atresias, um, frequently present with polyhydramnios. So you may see either oligo or polyhydramnios on those, uh, or prenatal ultrasounds. Complications are mainly related to the fact that since there is no overlying membrane of of the bowel, the intestine has direct ongoing contact with the amniotic fluid. And this can lead to irritation and damage of the intestines, uh, which are very uh, sensitive tissue. They may be dilated, matted, or covered with a fibrinous inflammatory rind. Mm -hmm. And the injury to the intestines can lead to a host of problems, which we'll discuss more on Wednesday um, in the postnatal course. Mm -hmm. However, um, may also be associated uh, with even in utero perforation. So we may see some uh, findings of that around the time of delivery, like um, uh, meconium staining. In general, there are no um, known associations with malformations outside of the GI tract, unlike in the omphalocele, which we'll discuss in a moment. But up to 10% of cases will still have additional malformations. Um, and 25% of infants born with gastroschisis have other GI malformations, such as the presence of intestinal atresia, stenosis, a bowel perforation, necrosis, um, and they, ha- they uh, have malrotation and volvulus. These infants um, have, so those babies with additional GI malformations are actually termed complicated gastroschisis as opposed uh, to those infants who don't have any associated GI malformations. They're termed simple gastroschisis. Um, And complicated gastroschisis is associated with increased mortality and increased morbidity, um, such as longer length of stay, increased ventilator days, a longer, a more prolonged ileus, um, and longer time before beginning feeding, more difficulty advancing feeds. In In addition, I mentioned this briefly, the incidence of intrauterine growth restriction is really high in gastroschisis. In studies, this ranges between 25 to 60%. And in particular, being um, SGA or small for gestational age predicts a longer length of stay in babies with gastroschisis compared to those infants that are not um, small for gestational age. In addition, there's a higher rate of prematurity in infants with gastroschisis, and I thought this was fascinating. This is felt to be mediated by the intrauterine inflammation caused by these exposed and often um, damaged intestinal loops. Um, When associated with prematurity, there's often more damage to the loops um, respectively. So they they think that this damage and prematurity are linked. Mm. Um, time to phalanerol feeds may su- be significantly prolonged in gastroschisis um, because of the damage to the intestine, and many comorbidities are associated with prolonged TPA in use, cholestasis, metabolic bone disease, um, and CLABSI. 
Um, and some of these babies have um, cholestasis not related to TPN use, um, just on even initial presentation. Oh, that's COVID. interesting. Because I'm assuming yeah. the Klabzi uh, or the central line bloodstream infection is because they're difficult to feed. They have this, this prolonged right. alias, right, very often. So they most likely have longer need or dependence for, um, for central lines. And so I was thinking, okay, so like the more the more central line days you have, the more likely you are to be victim of an infection. But interestingly, you're saying the cholestasis is not related to prolonged TPN use. That's right. Huh. That's exactly right. So, I, sorry, to be clear, you could have both, yeah. right? Some of these babies have early cholestasis, like you to initial few days, few uh, first week, they'll have cholestasis. You can still develop TPN cholestasis just because you're on um, prolonged uh, TPN. Um, the overall uh, survival rate uh, is greater than 90%, and most patients experience good long-term health and good growth overall. Um, the reported kind of long-term complications include kind of non-specific abdominal pain and need for additional abdominal surgeries to repair strictures and revise scars from the initial wow. surgeries. Um, in contrast, the emphalocele um, is seen in about three to four out of 10,000 um, babies and is defined as a protrusion of the abdominal contents through the base of the umbilical cord and is covered um, by the peritoneum. So it has that overlying membrane. Um, so this is really the major difference between the two, and it relates to the origin of the defects, which you will tell us about mm -hmm. tomorrow. Um, phallocele, um, when we talk about You're putting a lot um, of pressure on me for tomorrow, by the way. You're saying, <laughs> Yeah, you got a lot to do. You got a lot to do. You got to explain why all of this is happening. Man. So, in general, emphalocele is more commonly seen in older mothers um, or in infants born to older mothers, um, usually greater than 40, but it's seen on kind of both extremes. Um, so, in very young mothers, um, less than 20 or greater than 40, whereas gastroschisis is uh, the kind of uh, buzzword is that it's uh, seen in infants born to very young mothers, mm -hmm. less than 20. It's more common in multiple births um, and in um, black infants and those of male sex. Prenatal diagnosis is made by ultrasound um, as well, usually caught on the 20-week ultrasound. Um, and these babies will also have these, uh, these, they will also have elevated alpha-fetoprotein levels on maternal testing. Of note, while it can be distinguished from gastroschisis in utero, emphalocele can also occasionally rupture in utero, making it difficult to distinguish from gastroschisis. So that I will talk if you about. See Oh, you will talk. I mean, see, yeah. you, you see, I knew you were uh -huh. going to do so much stuff. But so you may see free floating bowel after a ruptured emphalocele in utero. So, a very good exam postnatally can help um, differentiate the two because, again, the emphalocele will be central, uh, the gastroschisis will be to the right of midline. I think you're going to cover some more of that tomorrow. While it can occur as an isolated malformation, it's much more likely than gastroschisis to be associated with other malformations um, and numerous syndromes, especially Beckwith-Wiedemann. So that um, is a very clinically relevant tip and um, very highly tested yeah, on the board. Super high yield. It, yeah. Um, it's Beckwith-Wiedemann is like one of the board's favorite, <laughs> favorite things. Stuff. You're probably right. Um, You're probably right about yeah. that. I know. They love Beckwith-Wiedemann. I, I don't know why. I think there are like a lot more babies with Beckwith Wiedemann than we maybe notice in the in the NICU. 
or in the newborn nursery. Daphna is a, is a frustrated, That's my a frustrated geneticist, by the way. <laughs> That's my tip. Um, it's also associated with this syndrome that I really honestly, I did not hear about until I started studying for the boards, but I probably should have. The OEIS, mm. so emphalocele cloacal extrophy, imperfect anus, and spinal defects. And um, emphalocele is also seen more commonly in the trisomies 13, 18, and 21. Mm. The report estimates of associated anomalies for emphalocele um, range between 30 to 80% depending on the study. So a lot of um, additional uh, defects. Uh, let me tell you kind of their prevalence. So the chromosomal defects, almost 50%. And again, trisomy 13, 18, and 21 are the most common. Um, followed by cardiac defects, 30%. Uh, so we see septal defects, PDAs, dextrocardia, tetralogy, fallow, bicuspid, aortic valves. Uh, GU, 20%. Craniofacial, 20%. Uh, diaphragmatic hernia, 12%. Musculoskeletal, so vertebral and limb deformities. Um, are uh, occasionally seen. Um, and then um, we also see pulmonary uh, hypoplasia, which is part of the complications in the postnatal course. Complications associated with emphalocele can include damage to the liver if it's included in the defect, and that can happen in utero, it can happen during delivery, and it can happen postnatally. Um, uh, like I said, many infants with emphalocele have a small thorax associated with pulmonary hypoplasia, um, and this predicts the need for mechanical ventilation. Um, and mechanical ventilation overall is uh, more common than in infants with gastrostasis. Postnatally and after surgical repair, the complications consist of feeding difficulties, failure to thrive, inguinal hernias, prolonged TPN use, gastroesophageal reflux, and occasionally esophagitis. But in general, um, babies with emphalocele, unless they have giant emphalocele, which I'll talk about on Wednesday, um, they tend to have shorter uh, time to full feeds than babies with gastroschisis. But the major kind of comorbidities uh, and, and determinant of outcomes are really related to these other associated malformations and, of course, the size of the defect. Um, the infants whose defect contain the liver have much poorer outcomes. Uh, defects that contain even more organs have even poorer outcomes. Um, and though the overall survival is less in gastroschisis, it's still about 80%, but the mortality is dependent on these associated malformations or syndromes. So, for example, babies um, with the trisomy uh, 13 and 18 will have... Um, higher mortality rates and shorter life expectancy, um, and, and in particular, those babies um, with associated cardiac malformations um, will have uh, a more difficult clinical course um, and higher mortality. So to kind of recap for the day, I was going to go over kind of the, the some of the major differences. So, the highlights. The highlights. Uh, maternal ages as uh, but you, you did a very good job by the way I feel like even oh, though you're going to go through highlights like it was you. very clear I think you highlighted a lot of the important stuff in each one and, and that was that was oh. really good what a nice compliment there you go. <laughs> so um, maternal age is frequently in the question stem so gastroschisis um, tends to occur in uh, infants to born to mothers back closer younger, to the mic. younger age so do you want me to start? No, over? that's okay. But we can see that you're 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 turning your head. <laughs> I'm turning my head. Yeah. 
Yeah. I got the it. book is on my, the right I'll side now. My, I'll bring it here. <laughs> Much better. So maternal age, uh, younger, usually less than 20. That's frequently in the in the stem. The um, thalassial uh, question stem tends to have an older mother, uh, greater than 40. Um, the male to female ratio in gastroschisis, like I said, is pretty similar, though there are some studies that show an increased male, um, male predominance. We heard it. We heard it. We got it. <laughs> and thalassial, um, much more common in males. So the male to female ratio is three to one. I've only seen it in female infants, though. So The emphalocele? Uh-huh. In my personal cases. Well, we have a lot of personal cases in common, so. Um, huh. I don't recall, actually. Maybe. Maybe you're <laughs> right. Uh, the location of the defect. This is like a, you got to know. So the gastroschisis is to the right of the umbilical cord. The emphalocele is within the umbilical hmm. ring. The umbilical cord in gastroschisis has um, a normal insertion and it is intact. And then the ophthalocele, since it comes through the base of the umbilical cord, um, uh, the insertion is on to, it's kind of like on the distal end of the covering sac over the defect. The size of the defect in gastroschisis is usually small, less than four centimeters, and actually smaller defects are much more associated with increased uh, morbidities because they're um, much more likely to have some sort of vascular disruption. The emphalocele defect tends to be bigger, usually greater than four centimeters. Gastroschisis uh, may also uh, have the stomach extruded, and thalassials are much more likely to have other organs, liver, spleen, bladder, uterus, ovaries in the defect. Okay. All right. Well, that was great. Thank you very much. Thanks. I guess I'm up tomorrow. See you guys tomorrow. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.